When we think about rudeness at work, we might think of petty little things that when they happen to us, we feel that we should just rise above them. You know, don't be a snowflake. Just brush it aside and be a grown up and not let any of that little stuff get in your way. That's true, Tim. And there are plenty of things that we should just let roll off our back. Remember, Hanlon's razor. We should not assume malice when behavior could easily be attributed to stupidity. And just to let you know, I'm using stupidity here to mean lack of good sense of judgment. So it may be one thing to show some grit, but on the other hand, there are times when we shouldn't ignore it either. But what exactly defines rudeness in the workplace? And when should we pay attention to it? Yeah, so so the formal definition of rudeness that we tend to work with is low-intensity deviant behavior with ambiguous intent to harm. Rudeness is these low-level, minor, they're insults, they're small behaviors that um, in organizational settings we tend to allow, right? It's okay to take the last bit of coffee and not not make new one. You're not going to get fired for that, but you are going to get fired if you are actually aggressive to somebody, right? So a lot of times you can see where that's, like that almost ends up being the differentiator. And that's where we're headed in today's episode. When do these low-intensity deviant behaviors at work go beyond just a little rudeness and end up limiting our ability to be as productive as we could? Welcome to Behavioral Groups, the podcast that explores stories, science, and secrets from the world's brightest thought leaders for the curious at heart. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to explore human behavior that will improve your relationships, your well-being, and your organization by helping you find your groove. From best-selling authors to researchers, you will learn insights from the sharpest minds in behavioral science. Trevor Falk is an associate professor of management and organization at the Robert H. Smith School of Business at the University of Maryland. His research interests include deviant workplace behaviors and workplace power dynamics. His research has been published in a variety of peer-reviewed journals, as well as Time Magazine, Harvard Business Review, and the Wall Street Journal. We caught up with Trevor to talk about rudeness and how it relates to power in the workplace. We tend to see people who are rude who are exerting power, and some of them feel pretty entitled to do so. We also discovered that giving your medical professional a compliment before she addresses your medical concerns can increase the quality of care that you receive. Yeah, it can literally help you live longer. Yeah, so just by saying some kind words before you have to pull your gown up might help. (laughs) Well, when you say it that way, it's little you. You. That's true. That is true. (laughs) Okay. How about if we end on a positive note, like that we discuss the role that music plays in your ability to perform at certain tasks, huh? Okay. So that was cool. And we had a good discussion about music overall because Trevor is sort of a music junkie. But right now, we want to encourage you to sit back with a generous pour of kind and grateful words as you listen to our conversation with Trevor Falk. Trevor Falk, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you guys for having me. I'm super excited to be here. We are excited to have you, and we always start with a speed round, so we're going to do that right now. Trevor, coffee or tea, which do you prefer? So, probably tea. I haven't drank caffeine, co- caffeinated coffee in, I think, 10 or 12 years. Ooh, um, wow. So, if I'm going to drink something with caffeine in it, I'll drink tea. But you know what's interesting is like the coffee break is like ubiquitous at work. Sometimes people are like, hey, let's go grab a coffee. You don't ever hear people say, let's go grab a tea. 
<laughs> not in the U.S. Not no. in the U.S. <laughs> no. So I do find myself drinking a lot of decaf coffee. Okay. Um, and even though I don't drink the caffeinated version, I do sort of like the ritual of drinking. I like making it. And I like the way it smells. Like when I was in grad school, I had one of those tiny little coffee pots in my tiny little office. And I would make the, the decaf coffee every morning, even though sometimes I didn't drink it. So I, I like coffee. Okay. I, yeah. I, that's fascinating. So is, is uh, you just have given up caffeine? Is that kind of the, the, the basic uh, premise on, on the non-caffeinated stuff that you're I try doing? to not like rely on caffeine in the morning. Like sometimes in the afternoon, if I need a boost, I'll have, I'll have some tea, but I just didn't like the idea that I, I couldn't get up without this cup of coffee, but, yeah. it, but I still like the, I, you know, it's fun to make it and you know, you see the pot filling up and stuff like that. So, well, and, and the smell of coffee is fantastic. Absolutely. It is just, that has that aroma that it just makes and you go, Oh, it brings you back to all of the, I don't know if your parents had, you know, drank coffee, but my parents drank coffee in the morning. And so it's just, that some of that home kind of feeling of warmth and niceness. And, and that's in some great. way, just the process of doing it. And, and like you said, the smell signals morning, you know, it's like, it's yeah. morning. Yeah. Yeah. I don't drink coffee at all. But I've stayed in a hotel one time where they put coffee beans in their clothes dryer. And so their their towels smelled of coffee. It was fantastic. I just, <laughs> I, I loved it. Getting out of the shower and having a, the, it was really great. I just loved it. Oh, okay. So we're in the speed round here. So. <laughs> I'm not being very speedy. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. We never are. Would you prefer to have dinner with your favorite athlete or favorite musician? Probably my favorite musician. I really like, you know, as my name, as my last name makes it, would probably imply I like folk music. I like these, <laughs> I like these, okay. you know, artists. It's just like one person and a guitar, and they sing and tell stories. So I think it'd be really fun to have, you know, have a meal with one of those people and hear more about the stories, like hear where these songs come from or what life experiences influenced the song. Anyone in particular? I'm a big fan of Lyle Lovett. And I think Lyle Lovett is like, he tells really good stories. And I think he's an incredible musician. I would like, he would be somebody I think would be really awesome to have a, to have a meal with. Yeah. Saw Lyle Lovett in concert. He was fantastic. Cause he does, he set up some of those stories, you know, yeah. and he, he does that talking in between and it's just fantastic. So yeah. Was it, was it a large band show or, or a small band? Show no, it was him. And, and um, Oh, who was the other, it was a, him and another famous uh, songwriter, and they they do the show every couple of years where they go out and they, God, who was the other one? And Is they kind of Robert Elkin, maybe. No, I'll have to look it up. We'll put it in the show notes. We'll okay. let people know. But it it was fascinating because it was just him and the other songwriter, and they would they would play backup on each other and maybe you know do backup songs, but that was it. So there was no band. So. Yeah, I've seen him. I've seen him several times. Once in that format, it was him and Robert Earl Keane, just like you said, mm, yep. like kind of primary and secondary on, and then switching back and forth. And then I also saw the large band thing, which was incredible. The large band is incredible. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's just like that's this, a spectacle. Yes. It's amazing. And, and I don't know of anybody else that's really doing it that way, like kind of infusing that Texas sound with this almost gospely way of, of, of making music. It, it was really awesome. Yeah. 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 Okay. So much to talk about there. So well. again, not very speedy. Yeah. Not very speedy. So third question, um, would you rather learn a new instrument or learn a new language? Um, that's a great question too. I think a new instrument and maybe, maybe more accurately, I would like to relearn some of the old instruments. I used to play more guitar and 
than I do now. And, and, and I have these guitars sitting over here. I mean, if I turn my camera, you'd see them. There's multiple guitars. Do. That I, ha- I have picked, picked up. Yeah, we want to see them. I just have like my oh, corner yeah. of guitars that I haven't picked up in years. Um, so, and every, every summer I'm like, this is the summer I'm going to get back into it. And then it's not. And so, yeah, but more than anything, I would love to get back into, into playing guitar and be one of those people that could like effectively play a song and tell a story. Uh, I can't do both <laughs> of those things at once. I can tell a story and I used to be able to play some songs, but I was never like I could do both. So cool. I would love to be able to do both. Very cool. Okay. Last speed round question. We will talk more about your guitars as well later. Can low levels of negative behavior really be spread from person to person within an organization? Yes. This is a great, this is a great question. Um, thank you for leading me into my, <laughs> my research. Um, so, so one of the things I study uh, is rudeness and, and how one, and one of the topics I look at is how rudeness spreads from person to person, or in other words, can be contagious. So I think rudeness as a topic is really interesting because it's one of those things that just bugs us. Like, Think about like if somebody cuts you off in traffic, like it's such a minor thing, right? It's like, you know, it happened, it's over, right? No big deal. But we often find ourselves like miles and miles later being like, oh, that guy, I just, you know, I, I just want to, I want to say something to him or, or her or whatever, right? Like these minor, minor things just seem to like get in our heads and stick with us in a way that is like totally out of whack with the intensity of the experience. Right. We have these really, really minor experiences and they just kind of stay in our head. So typical models of like where these things come from, like typical models of aggression suggest that like aggression is typically a response. Like if you're mm. aggressive to somebody, you typically know why. Right. Like some, they did something to me, so I'm doing something back to them. But rudeness a lot of times comes out of like absolutely nowhere to both parties. Right. Like if somebody's rude to you. You're like, I don't think I did anything. I don't know where that came from. And if you ask the person why they were rude to you, they might often not even know. So it's disconnected from our typical explanations of where negative behaviors come from. So my colleagues and I started looking at how rudeness can be, might be contagious. Like it might actually, when we experience rudeness, it might actually change our mindset a little bit and cause us to be more rude. And so what we found is when people experience rudeness, it essentially like, activates the part of the brain that is responsible for detecting rudeness, right? So like this is an evolutionary based response, right? If we encounter dangers, our brains are supposed to wake up and say, okay, this is a potentially dangerous context. So I need to be on the lookout for those types of things. Um, Rudeness seems to do the same thing. When we encounter rudeness, it tells our brain that this potential threat is out there in the environment and we start looking for it. But because it's kind of low level and minor and ambiguous, once we start looking for it, we find it, right? And then when we find it, we react. And so what it, what it implies is that if Tim is rude to me, you know, for the rest of this podcast, I'm going to be a little bit more sensitive so that if Kurt says something even maybe totally benign or ambiguous, I'll be rude to him. And indirectly, <sighs> Tim's rudeness to me caused me to be rude to Kurt. So that explains a lot, Tim. You know, in our in our interviews here, it's you're you're being rude to our guests unless they're being rude to me. I get. I it. thought that they were being rude to you because you were really rude, but <laughs> I, guess, I guess it's not. Uh, this is fascinating, uh, Trevor. So I'm really interested in the part about rudeness. 
being perceived from an evolutionary perspective as a potential threat, in part because what's going through my head is, is Hanlon's razor. This idea of don't attribute to malice, which could easily be attributed to stupidity. And yet we attribute to malice so quickly. Uh, why is that? That's a great point. As much as it would be effective and pragmatic to not do this, <laughs> again, from an evolutionary point of view, we're better off overestimating threats than underestimating threats, right? So, and really in the end, this is the way our brains are programmed. Our brains are programmed that if there is even the hint, the potential for something to be threatening or dangerous to us, we really want to be aware of that and be ready to respond. So maybe like in a team setting, teams would be more effective if we sort of attributed things to stupidity and not malice, but our survival is emphasized when we attribute things to malice. Right. Mm. It's, it's better for us long term to attribute things to malice and sort of that's and that's how we're wired. And so obviously, like this behavioral explanation is really more about, you know, dinosaurs potentially coming to eat you. It has nothing to do with <laughs> with rudeness. Right. Like rudeness is not such a threat that we should react this way. So it isn't a good response, but it's just the way ultimately we're wired. So, Trevor, is there anything that we can do? to put a pause between that feeling of, of being somebody being rude to us and then our response to it? Or is this so naturally occurring and quickly happening within our brain that it's really hard to do that? Or are there any things that we can do in order to kind of eliminate some of that response that we have? Yeah, it's really challenging. So in this body of work that I work on with my colleagues on rudeness, you know, it's, it's really great to point out the problems. Um, <laughs> And, and we all we always think, well, it would be even better if we could identify solutions. And while there have been, we have identified some solutions, the solutions are harder to come by than, than the problems. So one thing we found is that if you can give somebody a reason for somebody's rude behavior before the behavior happens, that can tamp down our responses. However, if we get the explanation after, it has almost no effect. So... If before Tim is rude to me, Kurt says, hey, by the way, Tim is having a really rough day. You know, his, his wife got laid off, his car, his car broke down, he got some bad news at work. Then when Tim comes to me and, and insults me, I'm like, eh, it's okay, Tim's having a rough day. But if Tim insults me, and then later on, Kurt says, by the way, Tim's having a really rough day, you know. I forget the things I said. I know one of them was car broke down. <laughs> He's having a bad country music day. There, there you go. Yeah. The effects are much, the, the mitigating effects of that post explanation are, are far weaker than the pre explanation. So that is like one potential factor that can, that can mitigate these things. One interesting thing we found in one of our studies was that like the contagious effect, we observe that up to a week later, like after the initial encounter, like, it's pretty robust temporarily, and and we don't have a great explanation for that. That was that was super surprising to us. But we found that if like if somebody encountered rudeness in a certain situation today, like in you know if they were in that same situation a week later, the effect of that previous encounter actually manifested again. So it doesn't it doesn't just like seem to wear off. Again, the evolutionary explanation here would suggest it should be pretty pretty robust. But we are, yeah, we're working on these things, trying to, trying to find what to do about it. It sounds like holding a grudge to some degree. I mean, to, to go a week after, after some rudeness and still have this, this contagious effect that I'm going to be rude to someone else because 
because someone else was rude to me. Yeah. So, so holding a grudge would be a conscious explanation, right? And and a conscious explanation would be identified by, if you ask me why I could explain to you, right? I could say a week later, well, I'm doing this because of that thing that happened a week before. I, I think it might be more subconscious or, you know, more intracognitive, the explanation that it's just encountering rudeness in a situation tells you that that situation is potentially threatening so that when you come back to that situation, again, your brain is like, oh, that thing happened here before. Be on the lookout for more threats now. So it, it's contextually based on the environment, the situation that you're in. So it's not necessarily saying that somebody was rude. To, somebody cut me off in, in my car, right? And so driving down the highway at this point, I'm more likely to feel that sense of rudeness and be reminded of that if I'm driving down that same highway. Down the highway, yeah. yeah. And, and we, found, we found some evidence for this in a study where we, again, we, we had people experience rudeness in a certain situation, in a certain context, like in a specific room. And then a few days later, put them in the same room or a different room. And when they were in the same room, we saw those effects. So oh, it, that's so cool. It does wow. suggest that there's something about this context that brings it back. Yeah, we interviewed Jonathan Barge, you know, who does all the work on priming or has done a, a, a lot of work on priming. And it sounds like it, what this is, is, is you're priming those neural pathways to be activated more likely in that situation. Ironically, the study I just told you about with the rooms, yeah. he, helped with, he helped with that. <laughs> oh, we did. Oh, my <laughs> so these, aren't, these aren't totally independent ideas yet. Uh, there you go. There we you collaborated go. a little bit on, on those ideas and how that would work and how to design that study. So, yes, well, fantastic. I'm absolutely drawing on all of his amazing research to make these predictions about, you know, the specific rudeness phenomenon. He's actually, we're going to have him back on the show. So he is coming on uh, again, I think in a couple of weeks we're interviewing. So that'll be another episode coming out. So I'll ask him about this one in particular. (laughs) There you go. Okay. So, so Trevor, is there a, are there any mitigating effects with personality? I'm thinking like big five, like, you know, neuroticism, especially if you're highly sensitive, does that impact the way people are affected by this? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And it's like a really intuitive way to think about it, that certain people may just be more or less sensitive because of their because of their dispositional personalities. I'm not an expert in this area, but but we have not found that. We I, I can't point to one or two specific personality traits that seem to suggest, well, that person will be, you know, immune to the effects of rudeness. One thing I can say is we do this in a lot of different contexts, a lot of different cultures where you would expect people to just kind of be used to this. For example, like customer service situations, like customer service mm-hmm. people experience rudeness all the time. Um, in fact, that's one of the main places we study this phenomenon. And despite encountering it all the time, um, we still observe robust effects of rudeness, even among people who customer service facing people who experience it all the time. Similarly, like in medical situations, like medical situations are really robust for this as well. Like doctors and nurses and you know, the different types of dog, you know, the anesthesiologist and the surgeon are always pretty curt and, and abrupt with each other, especially in emergency situations. And you would think that over time they would get used to it, but in reality, they don't. So the effects are reasonably robust. Let's go down that. I do find it fascinating too, in the customer service world, thinking about that, you go, oh, that may be some of the reason why if it's, if it's a self uh, kind of fulfilling you know, loop where, you know, they're being rude and then they subsequently are rude yeah. and, and, and it just is, it builds upon itself. You can see that, but let's explore the, the health side of this. So what does the research show from the, 
you know, medical practitioners? What what kind of impact does that have? Yeah, it's really interesting. So, so again, when we think about what rudeness is, it is by definition a pretty low intensity thing. And the thing to me that makes it interesting is our is our sort of exaggerated reactions to this low intensity thing. But intuition would suggest, well, if it really mattered, right? If somebody's life was on the line, people should be able to get past rudeness, right? Like a minor insult should not affect you so much when you are literally responsible for somebody's health and life. And despite the intuitive nature of that explanation, um, that's not what we find. Um, (laughs) We find um, specifically that, I mean, this isn't such an exaggeration that rudeness actually kills, right? That that when, when medical professionals wow. prior to a procedure experience rudeness, their performance on that procedure goes down to the point where mortality goes up, both diagnostic performance as well as procedural performance. So both their ability to determine what needs to be done and then their ability to actually deliver it are both impaired by very, very minor, seemingly minor encounters with rudeness. We studied this when the rudeness came from a colleague. So if prior to going into a procedure, a team gets insulted by a colleague, their performance goes down. We also found, um, surprisingly and also instructively, that performance goes down when a team is insulted by a family member of the patient. So, you know, practically speaking, it tells us don't insult or don't say negative things to your doctor prior to them operating on your family member, because in a very real way, um, it's, again, we talked about this in the beginning of the podcast. It just sort of gets in your head and it stays there. And even when you're doing something really important, it's just hard to get past it. And so what is the, is it because it's stuck in your head that it's taking up brain space and doing different facets of it that you think that reduces the the performance ability on those activities then? That is our main theoretical explanation that it's sort of, okay. it takes up cognitive processing capacity, you know, where our brains are like computers, we have a limited amount of things we can be working on at one time. When we encounter rudeness, it just kind of, you know, we're trying to make, we want to understand it. Why did they do that? We want to make sense of it. And it sort of, it sort of weighs on us. In one of our studies, what we found, we found specific evidence that team processes are impacted, which is one of the reasons that that performance goes down. So, if all of us just experience rudeness and then we go into this thing, we're all thinking about it a little bit, mm. it becomes more difficult for us to coordinate our actions, which is obviously really, really important, you know, if we're conducting a surgery. Um, so we find, you know, we find that people, if people experience this rudeness prior to a procedure, information sharing in the, on, the, on the team goes down. So the doctors and nurses conducting the procedure are talking less and telling each other less about what they're seeing and thinking and doing. Um, and also workload sharing goes down. Like they're less willing to jump in and help and sort of take take over when things need to be done. So that explains why both pre- diagnostic performance as well as procedural performance are impaired. So this just popped in my head, so it may not be formulated very well, but I'm wondering if you've looked at or, or studied. So this idea that, well, rudeness in front of this actually has a negative impact, both from a customer service perspective and in these medical procedures. And you talked about, you know, if you're a family and your, you know, your loved one is going in, don't be rude to the medical medical staff, right? Is there any work that says, well, what if you're the opposite? What if you are like, oh, you are the best team ever, customer service <laughs> representative. Oh, thank. I know you have a hard job, and I just really appreciate what you do. Does that help in 
in the then subsequent service that they provide. Have you done anything on that? I don't know if that's even an area of research. Yes, and, and you started you started to say it. You, I, I thought you were going to say thank you. <laughs> and that is what we find, that gratitude, gratitude prior to a procedure actually has the opposite effect. It increases performance and therefore reduces mortality. So yeah, if you have the opportunity to, you know, Give, give your medical professional an attaboy or, you know, a thank you or, you know, you're awesome. Again, it can have a very real impact on the way that they're able to deliver service to your loved one or you. Or you. Wow. Note to self. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Changing the way I'm interacting with everybody from now on. There you go. Well, <laughs> and... and- so tell us about uh, about the anchoring effects that you're, you're finding. Okay. So we, we also studied... Um, the effects of rudeness on decision-making biases, um, specifically the anchoring effect, and specifically within the context of medical decision-making. So for for those who don't know what it is, the anchoring effect is our tendency to sort of get anchored to an initial piece of information and have a difficult time moving off of it. So if somebody says, is the Mississippi River shorter or longer than 500 miles? You say, ah, longer. And then when we say, okay, well, how long is it? Our answers tend to group up right around 500 miles because 500 miles becomes this anchor and we have a difficult time moving off of that. Um, We see this a lot in negotiations. You know, the the initial offer tends to, the final solutions tend to group up right around the initial offer. But anchoring doesn't always have to be quantitative. It doesn't always have to be about numbers. So within the context of medicine, it could be about diagnoses, right? Mm. So oftentimes doctors you know, they have an initial diagnosis and then they, you know, look for evidence that is either consistent or inconsistent with that diagnosis. But oftentimes those those initial diagnoses, those initial diagnoses are totally wrong or totally irrelevant, right? So, you know, if if I was bringing my child into into the doctor to get treated, I, I almost always have some sort of lay explanation of what's going on, right? I think he has this or I think he has that. And I almost always say it. And what we're finding is that when that happens, if that doctor experienced rudeness before before hearing your anchor, that essentially becomes an anchor, that they have a difficult time moving off of that anchor. Um, Mm. So we ran ran a really cool simulation where we, it it was, you know, in an ER simulator, we had a, you know, not a real patient, but it looked like a real (laughs) patient. um, and And the simulator was giving them actual feedback about the patient's ailment. Prior to the simulation, we said, you know, it might be this, you know, it's just a very, very minor prod said it, this may be what's wrong. And then the simulator consistently gave them information that, it, that the patient's real ailment was something else. If those doctors experienced rudeness prior to the simulation, they had a much harder time moving off of that initial ailment, which I just find really fascinating just in terms, it, it helps us see the way our brains are making decisions and again, the major impact these minor, minor things can have. You guys earlier asked about factors that could assuage these effects. So in this study, we actually did more than just identify the problem. We found a few solutions. Excellent. So the effect is really a narrowing effect. Like rudeness sort of narrows our attention to the encounter. And then that amplifies the anchoring effect, which is also sort of a narrowing process. So we found that exercises that help you broaden your perspective mitigate the effect of rudeness on anchoring. Um, One of those is perspective taking. So taking the perspective of another person, thinking about the world from their point of view, broadens your perspective and weakens this effect of of rudeness on anchoring. We also found that 
simply asking for more information or being being prompted to ask for more information also weakens this effect. So if you, again, asking for information will broaden what you're, the way you're thinking about the problem and the situation so that the anchoring, the anchoring phenomenon is less pronounced. So Trevor, in that situation, you said, talked about bringing your child in, doing that kind of thing. So in that instance, it would be better if as a parent to start asking the doctor more questions as they're going into this to, to potentially broaden that perspective. Is that correct? I think from a parent's point of view, the broad takeaway from this is be nice. Because you know? <laughs> <laughs> nice. even those questions could serve as an anchor. You know, if, if you're not really trained, I, I would hesitate to, to tell people to ask medical questions to a medical professional. But I think what we can take away from this is just be nice to them. Like, we, we find consistent evidence that their performance is decreased when we're not nice to them and increased when we're nice to them. So let's, let's, yeah. just, let's just be nice. Very simple solution. <laughs> there we go. That's fantastic. I wanted to switch gears to see if we could uh, talk a little bit about uh, the effects of power, especially on power holders. You've been doing some research along these lines. Can you share some of those, those findings? Yeah. So, so one of the things that I think is interesting about power, particularly in organizational settings, like uh, when we think about work, is there's this tension. We accept two things to be, to be true when really these two things are, are at odds with each other. The one thing is that, you know, having power is good, right? We all want power. Very few of us ever say no to a promotion or a new job with, with you know, more authority, right? We often think that my job is okay, but I'll be really happy when I get that next step up, right? Most of us accept this to be true. We also accept it to be true that leadership positions are difficult, right? Most of us accept that leaders are stressed and have a hard job and, you know, it's just difficult and tiring and exhausting to be leaders. And so there's this tension here in that, like, when we're not leaders, we think we want to be leaders and be powerful. And then when we have power, we're like, this is tiring. And so <laughs> I wanted to better understand why having power would result in this, these negative effects for the power holder because it's so inconsistent with the way we think about power, what we expect to happen. And we found basically two main things that help us understand why the experience of feeling powerful is not always universally awesome for the power holder. The first is that feeling powerful fundamentally changes our expectations for the way others will treat us. So when we feel powerful, we expect others to treat us better. You know, we feel like we have a lot to offer. You need me more than I need you. And, you know, just, I should be, you know, just up to a little bit. Right? <laughs> wow. Wow. But oftentimes that doesn't happen. And therefore powerful leaders often have their expectations unmet in a mm. way that negatively impacts the way they experience the workplace. So this is one explanation of why, you know, feeling powerful is not always great, right? Because we're just like, man, that, well, actually what we found is that it increased perceptions of rudeness. We think people are being rude to us because they are not, you know, sort of treating us as though we're exalted. <laughs> wow. The other major explanation we found is that feeling powerful substantially and significantly increases how demanding or arduous our jobs feel. Mm. So we, we ran a field study where on half of the days we, we gave people a power manipulation, you know, make them feel powerful. And then on the other half of the days, gave them the control, you know, no manipulation. 
And what we found is on the powerful days, at the end of the day, employees reported their jobs as more demanding. So we thought that was really interesting. So it, it seems as though just that sense of power makes you feel more like I'm the only one that can get this stuff done. Everybody's relying on me, so I can't let them down. There's all kinds of explanations for why this would increase demands. But another explanation was they actually were doing more work. So mm. we ran a second, a second experiment where we did the same thing. We manipulated feeling powerful versus control. And then we gave them a set of tasks to do. So the only difference, they were doing the exact same tasks, was whether they had been told prior to those tasks that they were the leader, the powerful leader, or the employee. And at the end of that, asked them how demanding those tasks had seemed. And we found that in the, in the powerful leader condition, they felt that the tasks, those tasks were more difficult. So holding task work exactly, exactly the same, feeling powerful makes those, makes those jobs feel more demanding. So, you know, it tells this story about power that, you know, it, it, it's not always so great for us. And to me, the big takeaway here is like, you know, be happy where you are. You know, there's, there's always this, there's always going to be the next job, the next promotion. And, and our tendency as humans is to think, well, I'll be happy when I get that next job. Once I get that promotion, things will be great. But collectively, this work is saying, ah, it'll be different. <laughs> it might, <laughs> it, it might, it, it'll be better in some ways and not, not as good in other ways. And so it's okay. It's okay to have no power now. You'll have a little power later, a little power later, and just sort of take it as it comes versus seeking it in such an aggressive way that many of us do. Oh, that's fascinating. So with that, Trevor, did you do any research? Uh, so as, as you point to this and you point to these two areas that having power is good, but the expectations change as part of that, right? The, the idea that they should be bowing to me in various different pieces. I'm wondering if there's a difference and I'm probably, probably isn't the research on this, but I was just wondering like that middle level to kind of mid senior level are probably different than that senior, senior, the executive level within an organization, at least on that first piece from my perspective of working with organizations where people really do kind of, you know, the yes men, as they say, to that senior executive. So maybe they're feeling some of that versus the middle level managers who, who don't necessarily get that. It could be. I, I think I don't. So, so to answer your first question, no, I don't have, I kind of treat it as yes or no, yeah. not where you are on the hierarchy. Everything you said makes sense to me. I would think at the highest level, they probably are getting more of their expectations met from the following the social explanation. But, but, I, would the also, other side. but I would also argue that the, that the demanding nature of that role yeah. is far, you know, far exceeds you know, what's happening in the middle. I would um, agree. I would agree. So yeah, it, it may be decreasing in one area, but it's going to be increasing in the other, yeah. other aspect of it. So it, at the end, it, it's probably just a wash anyway. Yeah. So, and what's interesting, we, we also have some work on, on not, not explicitly on those, on those people in the middle, but it relates mostly to those people in the middle. Um, so it's work on power fluctuation. So it's feeling powerful oh. and then feeling powerless and then feeling powerful and then feeling powerless, which would really apply to mainly to the people in the middle. And we find that, that those fluctuations are actually challenging and difficult for those people because each, each role comes with its own expectations and the way you're supposed to be. You know, if you're the powerful person, you're supposed to behave a certain way to be dominant and assertive. And then when you're the powerless person, you're supposed to be diminutive and sort of <laughs> listen, you know, just listen to what everybody else says. And constantly switching back and forth creates role overload and role, and role conflict. Like you're just not even sure what you're supposed to do. 
And so it can be those fluctuations can be challenging for power holders. I know Tim wants to get to music here soon, but I have a couple other questions I want to ask. So one of them, you had done uh, some research also on paranoia and power. Um, and just, you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I thought that was really fascinating, this idea of the power aspect of of how people feel paranoia. Yeah. So there's, so there's work that I, I didn't do on feeling yeah. powerful, creating a sense of paranoia. So when people feel paranoid, it often instills a sense of paranoia because they think that everybody wants something from them. Like yep. they have this sense that, well, if you're, if you're coming to me, it's not just because you think I'm cool. It's because eventually there's going to be an ask. And so, so people get paranoid about the, the intentions of others at work. And so what we started to do is think about this from the angle of the powerless, right? So there's this assumption that kind of permeates the literatures on power that, that there's a linear relationship between powerfulness and powerlessness. So whatever we see from the powerful, we should see the opposite from the powerless. So this explanation would say, well, if the powerful are getting paranoid, the powerless should not be paranoid because they don't have anything to offer, right? So they don't have to worry about people kind of trying to come after them or get something from them. But this, this doesn't really match with our, the way we experience the workplace, right? Like feeling powerless is definitely associated with a sense of paranoia. And so mm. it suggests that this assumption that, that powerless and power, powerlessness and powerfulness should be opposite of each other is not always valid. So, that, so we did a study where we looked at powerlessness and paranoia and found evidence that powerlessness creates a sense of paranoia, not because you think people want something from you, but because you are afraid that you have nothing to protect yourself with if somebody, you know, you don't have any resources, you don't have anything of value. So if somebody was trying to exploit you, you would be very exploitable. And mm. so you, you kind of scan the environment to make sure that those things aren't there and that's what paranoia is. And we found that this effect is weakened when you feel supported by your organization. So if you feel supported by your organization, this worry that you would have nowhere to go if somebody did try to do something to you goes away because now, even though you're technically powerless, you have a resource that you could leverage if you were if you were in trouble. Fantastic. Now, my second question is totally off, uh, goes convergent from here. I mean, or tangent to, to what we've been talking about here. Okay. Um, how do you go from working in software to starting and owning an adventure sports company, scuba dive company, uh, to being a professor? How, how, how does that that you know transition kind of kind of work? I'm curious about this one too. Yeah, I ask myself that question often. So. You know, for the listeners, I was a scuba diving instructor for 10 years prior to going back to getting my PhD. And, and it was great. I, I was doing it in my 20s and early 30s. And I don't know if you guys know much about scuba diving, but, but scuba tanks are heavy. And you have to wear a lot of weights in order to get down. So you're carrying heavy tanks, heavy weights, lots of equipment. In your 20s, you're like, no problem. In your 30s, you start to be like, mm, this isn't as great as it used to be. <laughs> the other thing was I was doing this not you know, in the Caribbean, I was doing this in the, in the mid Atlantic where the water's cold and, you know, there's not as exciting. It's not as much to see. And I started to think, well, hmm, what else? And I was reading a lot of books on, you know, psychology and cognition, you know, like, like um, thinking fast and slow and predictably irrational. And I started to think, man, this is really fascinating. And if I'm going to do a job that doesn't require me to carry heavy things and jump into freezing cold water, it might have something to do with this stuff in here. And I just got, I got really excited about it. 
And so I, I applied for applied for PhD programs. I was really, really fortunate to get into the OB program at the University of Florida um, and was able to pursue all, all of those interests, like with lots of support from great faculty. That is fantastic. Yeah, I love that story. Okay, but we do need to talk about your, not just your playlist, but first, you've done some research on playlists and how people deal with music, especially when they work. So uh, can you give us a little insight into what you've learned? Yes. So like you guys, I'm very fascinated by music and the way music influences performance. So um, one of my PhD students at the University of Maryland, um, Oz Genkei, he and I started thinking about this problem and, you know, what's really going on here with music? Because there's lots of converging, I'm sorry, diverging explanations for what music should do to our performance. Like there's, there's perspectives that say, you know, music should help us focus, right? It, it sort of drowns out other things that allows you to really just hone in on what you're doing. There's other perspectives that say music will draw your attention away from the thing that you're doing in a way that should reduce performance. So there is this tension in this literature in the way we understand what music should do. What's really interesting is that a lot of the work on music and performance was kind of done before we had personal playlists, right? It was really mm. like when companies broadcast, you, you, didn't, you didn't have choice, right? You just, it was, the question was music or no music. But now we're able to ask more sophisticated questions like what, what maybe it's about the music, right? It's, it's about the features of the music and there's a very, very interesting paper in the Academy of, Manager, Academy of Management Review that lays out a framework for what the features of music may be and how they should influence performance. But in addition to like the actual objective features of the music, I think we all know that we have relationships with certain songs, right? Like there's certain songs we love and there's certain songs we hate and there's certain songs we listen to all the time and there's certain songs we only listen to in certain situations. And, you know, I listen to your guys' podcast and you always ask about playlists, you know, play, like, we have this new phenomenon, I mean, not new anymore, but new-ish, this phenomenon of playlists. So Oz and I started to wonder, well, maybe it's about the familiarity of the music, like how familiar you are with a song that may influence whether or not it changes your performance. So what we found is that familiar songs actually draw your attention away from work more mm. than unfamiliar songs do. So we did a cool study where we picked two songs from the Star Wars soundtrack, right? The one that they play when the, when the like the rolling, the scrolling thing goes through the stars, you know, the... Uh, the theme song. The theme yeah. song, yeah. I'm not going to try to recreate yeah. it here, but you guys know what I mean. The Star Wars theme song. <laughs> and then we okay. took another track that was like from the deep, deep, deep down in the score, you know, something that you've heard, but are certainly not familiar with it. And then we had people do a Stroop task, which is essentially an attention task. Um, and we found that performance on the Stroop was significantly worse when listening to the theme song compared to when listening to this deep score song. And it, it is consistent with, with, other, with theoretical perspectives on familiarity. That familiar, things that we are familiar with, we sort of tend to engage with more cognitively. Like we give them more cognitive attention. We... We pay attention to them more. And you can imagine this, right? So, so we specifically did no, you know, songs with no lyrics, because there's also things mm. about lyrics, depending on what those lyrics are, that may change performance. But you know, any, imagine a song with lyrics that you know well. If you're trying to work and listening to a song that you know the lyrics to, what are you doing? You're singing along with it in your head, right? You're kind of 
maybe bouncing a little bit, thinking about, you know, the song, whereas brand new songs, you don't do that. You're just kind of experiencing them in a way that that seems to allow you to stay more focused on the work task. It's so interesting because as a musician, I am listening to lyrics all the time. If it's the first time I've heard a song, I'm listening to the lyrics. What did the songwriter have to say? Why did they choose those words? How did they put them together? Was there an interesting rhyme scheme? Were there, was there clever images? You know, I'm, I've got, I'm, I'm probably not the average listener. Kurt's looking at me like, well, <laughs> duh, of course you're not an average listener. Um, but yeah. I, think this, I think that this is fascinating. So if I understand correctly, music without words are going to be more likely to be conducive while you're doing a, a specific task, more comfortable, right? And that unfamiliar music without words is going to be more conducive. And so, so far we have held, we, we are, it's really familiar versus not familiar, not words versus no words. Oh, okay. We just wanted to hold words constant just so we didn't have a con because oh, okay. if we're going to play two songs and one of them is talking about, then they're talking about two different things. Like we just really wanted to manipulate familiarity without having lyrical content because we know that lyrical content can influence can influence things as well like yeah like if songs are talking about aggressive things we tend to start having more aggressive thoughts and we just didn't we wanted to stay away from that i do think that there that the next part of this research is to start to think about the integration of familiar versus unfamiliar lyrics and what the lyrics will do but but where we are currently is just about familiarity versus not. Yeah, I could see the research going in a number of different ways around this. There's some cool, you know, aggressive. As you talked about, is it aggressive music? Is it <laughs> is it relaxing music? Is it does the, the familiarity then piece that comes in kind of all the different aspects of the crossovers and and different pieces of those? So, so if you had to be on a desert island for a year, uh, what three artists would you take on your playlist? Okay, so. One of my favorites of all time is Jim Croce. So I would probably start with Jim Croce. As I told you, I like folk music and, you know, kind of storytellers. I thought uh, Jim Croce is one of, in my opinion, one of the most incredible like folk guitarists I've ever heard. Like his, just his, his, his rhythms and the way they're able to do things are, are fascinating. I love Jim Croce. Wow. Yeah. I mean, Operator is a, is a fantastic work in fingerstyle guitar with very, unpredictable rhythms yes. uh, in, in the way that he played it. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Cool. Okay. What else? Um, I also like things that are a little bit faster. So I listen, sometimes I, I like to listen to Rancid if I'm sort of like nineties punk music. So I would probably take Rancid. Rancid used to be my, um, like if I was mowing the lawn, I would just put it on and, and listen to it. And then I could sing as loud as I wanted because nobody could hear me. That's what you thought. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I never got any complaints. So maybe I'm not a good singer and I never got any complaints. So you know, and then I'll go in a completely different direction. If I'm going to be on a desert island, I would take Jimmy Buffett. Ah, wow. Okay. So, so I would have some on theme music as well. Oh, I see. <laughs> because it thematically lines <laughs> up with the desert right? island was, experience. It might, it might make the... It might make it feel more like a paradise island than a desert island. Ah, <laughs> framing. You're using this framing. is a vacation not being stranded out here. Yeah. Right? I'm, I'm on a, I'm not secluded. I'm on an exclusive. There you go. I just need a margarita yes. now. And, uh, you know, but I've lost my, you know, salt shaker yes, or whatever, exactly. however that lyric goes. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Trevor, thank you. This has been very informative. I mean, uh, the the stuff we've learned here, I think, is great, but it's also been really fun. So, thank you for for being a guest. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate it. 
Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Trevor, have a free flowing conversation and talk about whatever else comes into our deviant and rude brains. Wow. Yeah, we are. We are. And it's weird because it doesn't help us from a DNA perspective, does it? No, it doesn't. And I don't, well, maybe it does. Maybe, maybe there's an aspect of, of being Selection. rude that kind of allows us to feel more power, be more powerful. I don't know. And those, all those, those factors. Show dominance. That go in there. Yeah. yeah. But I'm just thinking, you know, we can be rude to each other sometimes in, in a fun, playful way. Like, like, give me an example. What, what are you thinking of? I don't know. Like, I, I always tell you that you, you print out your paper that you, you take <laughs> notes on and I say, oh, killing another tree, right? Is that yes. rude? Is that really rude? Or do we just have, is that fun? Is that, I mean, it's, it's, it's meant in jest, but it could be, yeah. come across as rude. And so am I limiting our productivity because we're having this, this gesture play? I don't know. Because yeah, we, you are limiting the ability of the behavioral grooves enterprise by just saying, <laughs> Hey, stop printing out, you know, that script and uh, killing all those trees. No, <laughs> I don't no. but it's not. But the thing is like, I know that it's in jest. It yeah. seems like good natured ribbing. So can that really be rudeness? And I wish we would have asked, I wish we would have asked Trevor, this is the thing I was thinking about this after of course the conversation yeah. ended. I was yeah. thinking about this because I think there is that level of play of this kind of jesting ribbing back and forth that people do that's in good nature and both parties know that it's in good nature and i think that yes. might be yes. the important part of this is that yep. both parties understand that this is not meant to be rude it's not meant to be malicious by any means it is intended to just hey bring some levity to the occasion to make it have a little bit of laughter and some fun and i think in those cases that I don't know. That would be interesting to ask Trevor about. But I do think there's definitely a level where that ribbing can go beyond where it becomes rude and it becomes to exactly what what Trevor has been talking about here. So so what did you what else did you find interesting? Well, before we get to what else I found interesting, what what I just found interesting in what you said was this is a central theme in Homo Ludens and the anthropologists that we talked to and the people who are studying uh, primatologists you know, that play is a sort of mutually agreed upon. Mm. As soon as it's not mutually agreed upon, then it's not play. Right. Oh, that's and a really so, good point. Yeah. Right. So, so rudeness might be part of that, that if one person thinks it's play, but the other person doesn't, then it's not play. You know, it's not going to be fun. That's a, that's a really important piece. There you go. Yeah. See, you should be a researcher, Tim. <laughs> if only, if only Kurt, <laughs> but one of the most important things that, that Trevor talked about was that rudeness is contagious, right? That there is this one bad apple, looks, you know, kind of can spoil the whole bunch. No. And I think that that's really, and we think about, I mean, the, the amount of work that you and I have done in corporate cultures, where you see very, very different behaviors from one corporate culture to the next. And they all have very similar aspirations, but the way that they get there can be very different. And, uh, and, you know, I, I've witnessed very rude corporate cultures yeah. where it's just okay to just be mean spirited to other people in the room. It's hard. You've seen that difference between teams within the same organization where yeah. that one bad apple is on one team or one department and <laughs> yeah. it gets yeah. transferred throughout that department. I think it's really interesting that we 
because we we often just dismiss it. It's like what you talked about up at the very beginning. It's this, oh, you should just grow big boy pants and just let it roll yeah. off your back, yeah. this idea. But in fact, there is a there's a negative um, cost to this. And it's something that we shouldn't overlook. It's that idea that when we are rude, we're actually impeding the organization's success. And that I think is really important as we think through this from an organizational perspective, also just family or other communal type uh, organizations that we're in, you know, this idea that being rude is okay, probably should be, you know, squashed. Yeah. And it might be important to differentiate rudeness from sort of uh, straightforwardness. The, mm. the ability to be clear and be and to communicate accurately is different f- than being rude. Yeah. Be, the opposite of being rude isn't just to be so diplomatic all the time that you fuzz over everything. It's it's actually uh, you know there, there's a there's a difference between that. I also thought that you know this idea that it triggers a low level danger threat in our brain that is an impediment to productivity. No, oh, yeah. This is a lack of psychological safety. As soon as, as soon as we start to feel like I can't contribute without having, you know, somebody, you know, chop my ankles, then I'm I'm gonna, you know, I'm not just not gonna contribute. Well, and and going back to your last statement before that, this idea that it's not about just being, you know, so nice to everybody. Psychological safety isn't about that either. Psychological safety is being able to say the things that are meaningful and real in a mm-hmm. way that I I don't feel like I'm going to get backlash on it. And I think what Trevor's research and what this is going to is also this idea that, hey, when we can say those things, we just shouldn't say them in a rude, mean, condescending manner because right. that impacts it. It does. It triggers these these low level danger threats that are that are there. And we're programmed to overestimate those threats. So this idea right. Right. that it doesn't matter isn't actually true and the important thing the one thing is this can linger it isn't just an immediate like oh you're rude to me and i turn around and i'm rude to the next person it can linger for some time that was a really cool part of this research yeah yeah absolutely how about you kurt what was a a big theme for you in our conversation with trevor just the idea that people would ever be rude to their medical, like, you know, doctor. (laughs) Oh my God. Why would you do that in the first place? Your medical doctor. But I mean, you think about, actually you think about the situation we're in today with all of the paranoia and the, the conspiracy theories around vaccines and different things. And you can see this probably even happening more where somebody might be really rude or mean to their physician and just the negative consequences that that has on your health. This idea that they anchor in on that rudeness and thus their ability to ascertain what is actually wrong with you is limited. It it impedes their ability to do their job effectively, that patient doctor, you know, component. So be nice to your doctors, be nice to your nurses. Oh my God, just be nice, you know, be nice to people in general. Yeah, get your get your Ted Lasso on. That's that's kind of that would be the the modern theme, I think. Yeah, right? yeah. For those who don't know, Ted Lasso is a Netflix um, TV show. Apple TV. Apple TV. That I have Apple. not even watched one episode of, so I have no idea who you're talking about. Well, for $5, you can get all the episodes. 
Oh, there you go. So there you go. Well, that's five but, bucks. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I know. Uh, so what else would you like to talk about? Well, I think the one thing, so we talked about the, how bad this is. We talked about the the negative consequences of this, but, but Trevor also mentioned some ideas on how to mitigate some of these negative consequences. And the one that I thought was really interesting was this idea of, hey, if you know you might be rude because you're just having a bad day, man. It is just, you know, your car broke down, your wife left you, your dog died. You know, it's the country music song of the day, right? And you're living that. <laughs> be upfront right. about that and just go, guys, I'm having a horrible, bad, absolutely terrible day, whatever that book was that you read as a kid, right? And just let people know that because then they can put a reason to that, that isn't about the rudeness to them. So it, be, so it reduces that low level danger threat. They're not being rude because you're trying to imply something about that person that you're talking to. You're being rude because you've just had a horrible, absolutely terrible day. And even if it's not that horrible, terrible, even if you just had one bad thing, make sure people know, be open. It really helps. I, I love the fact that when you and I start our conversation every day that you just say, hey, I'm going to be rude to you because I've had a really, really terrible morning. <laughs> <laughs> every day. Actually, I just say, I'm going to be rude to you because it's so much fun and, <laughs> and you're going to make my day <laughs> right because I get to be rude to you, Tim. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. No, it's... Um, it is important. And by the way, I've been using this since we talked to Trevor. I've been actually using this in a variety of different discussions uh, with with family members and uh, business people and just apologizing up front like I'm having a rotten day. And so <laughs> things are just not going to come out right. And all of a sudden you get this latitude and you build this like that little bit of openness ends up becoming a bridge to the other person to go like, Oh, well, you know, by the way, I'm having a really crappy day too. No. You know? so. Yeah. So you're not, you're not building that loop of rudeness because you're both having crappy days <laughs> right. and the rudeness could actually then get mean because you, you build it off can. of it. So yeah. Can. What else, Tim? What other things did you find interesting about our conversation with Trevor Falk? Uh, how about power? How what about, about we, power? You like, about? you like power? Like, is it 110, 220? What kind of power do you like? Like, 220, you know, 221, whatever it takes. You know, a 350 yeah. Hemi. What, what do you like? And then, yeah. I have no idea. Power. I have no idea what I'm talking about. What are you here. talking I am, about? I am not. I am not your electrical or car guy. Neither. Neither of those two are would be in my wheelhouse of of good information. So I just made shit up that I have no idea if it's but even true. I do love that Michael Keaton line from the movie Mr. Mom when he's being <laughs> he's being challenged on. Uh, rewiring some of the uh, electrical work in his house. And in the United States, the, the average currency is, is 110. But if you want more power, you can go to the 220, which is you know double the, the 110 uh, currency. And so Michael Keaton is asked, so are gonna, what are you going to do? Are you going to do 220? And Michael Keaton says, sure, because uh, he has no idea what he's talking about. He says, yeah, 220, 221, whatever it takes. <laughs> so... <laughs> God, I'm uh, sorry. That was a huge diversion, but that I was okay because that. It, it just goes to show <sighs> that you know Michael Keaton yeah. and me are are absolutely alike. There, there you yeah. go. So, what about power, Tim? What about the real power here that we're talking about? Not not electrical current or horsepower. Well, power increases the demand on our jobs. 
you know, like there's a real impact uh, from how we feel and how we feel about the, the work that we're doing when there is this, when, you know, this, this power is, um, you know, put on us when we, when we feel that it's, it's a burden, you know, I guess that's really the yeah. short story. Well, and I think it's really interesting because as Trevor mentioned, like nobody turns down a promotion or not <laughs> right. many people right. ever turn down a promotion. We, right. we, we aim for that promotion. We want to move up in the organization. And oftentimes we think that by, if I get that next promotion, if I get that next job, wow, isn't life going to be great? Yet we realize that leaders have a lot of stress and a lot of angst that they have to deal with on a day in and day yeah. out basis. But we always expect ourselves that this will be better. And in fact, we just need to be happy. Not this, this I think can come out wrong if, if it's taken, you know, we need to be happy in the position that we're in. And yes, there should be, we should be striving for things. And I don't want to ever imply that we shouldn't be no. striving to advance our careers, to advance ourselves as individuals, all of those things. But there is an element that we shouldn't be looking so much to the future for our enjoyment and our pleasure and our happiness that we forget that where we are can be really good as well. Also, in thinking about the sweet spot in our conversation with Paul Bloom, a little bit of, of stress, a little bit of push, a little bit of of external extrinsic motivation can be a good thing. So, it, mm. it, especially when it comes to, to finding our flow, to finding those groove states, to finding those days and weeks when we're really kind of between uh, that the, the toughest part of the challenge and the sweetest part of the reward, there can be really good things that happen in there. But in general, I, I really agree with Trevor's proposition that this idea that power can be really a, a hard thing to deal with. It can be a heavy burden to bear. I know. That's why That's why you left your high, powerful position and you went to be a, an independent <laughs> consultant, right? Isn't to follow it? you, to, to get started after you had already been doing it for more than 20 years. <laughs> you know? Oh, my God. You know, so here here is an actual piece that I found. That I didn't find that I just made the the yeah. are you making this in up? the conversation. This, are you just making? This yeah, up? I'm making this yeah. up. I'm, I just made this up, and I could be making this up, but this is my opinion. Middle managers have the shittiest jobs in the freaking world. You know, they just have the worst jobs. It is this thing, and, and Trevor talked a little bit. So that's my own opinion, but it kind of is backed up by a little bit of what Trevor was saying. With this idea that look, you fluctuate between having power. And not having right. power, having power, not having power, having power. And, mm -hmm. and it's just like, oh my God, that has to be tiring. It has to be draining. And yeah, oh, I mean, people are looking up to you. You got all the stress and everything from the power that you have, but then you have the powerlessness of, you know, having to take direction from your boss above you and different pieces. Oh, yeah. I feel sorry for any, any middle managers out there that are listeners. You have my sympathy. Well, in the the leadership roles that I had in in my corporate life, looking at the the variety of middle managers that were in the organization, I saw some of them are really well suited for it. Like they totally get it. Mm. They I don't thrive might be too strong a word, but they adapted really well. But most really suffer from this downflow of the. The senior leaders saying, this is what needs to be, and you need to carry this out. You need to execute on that. And then trying to deal with, you know, the the upstream stuff from their subordinates. And it's it's a constant, it's a never-ending stream of misery as far as I'm concerned. 
<laughs> yeah. Oh. Well, and then you then you have to deal with, you know, the paranoia folk out there, you know, that are there. Yeah. As a middle manager, you're getting yeah. the paranoia from above and below, and below. Right. And that paranoia conversation I thought was interesting as well. This idea that, hey, the feeling we often think that people in power are the ones that are paranoid because people are coming to take that power away. And so you get paranoid about losing what you have. But Trevor's research was showing that sense that, hey, paranoia can also be associated with powerlessness because you're feeling like you're being taken advantage of. And it creates the sense that, hey, you have um, no recourse. Uh, there's nothing to protect yourself from. So you always have to be vigilant about any potential threat that comes your way. Yeah, yeah that, that's pretty difficult. So what can we do about it? Well, I think going back to just the rudeness piece, right? Just be grateful, be kind, yeah. be nice as much as you can. Understand that sometimes those rude little comments have a bigger impact than what we believe them to be. And that sometimes you just, you you don't. At a subconscious level, you, it's not even conscious because if it's conscious, then it becomes an anger and and other pieces, it's at a subconscious level that it impacts people. And so you need to be upfront with just understanding how you show up in the workplace and are you being rude? And particularly if you think about this, when you're going into your doctor or your nurse, be kind, <laughs> be nice. Yes. It could save you life. Especially before you pull that gown up. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> it's also oh. it's important to to be self aware enough so that you're so that you can check in on your own grumpiness and just to let people know, hey, I'm having a grumpy day, right? Yeah. Just and tell yeah. them up front. Yeah. Well, what's really interesting is when you build up when you get to that level of trust. So, for instance, my wife and I will often call each other out. Ooh, you're grumpy today, and it's like, yep. Yep, I am. I'm sorry. I I'm I don't know why I didn't get enough sleep last night. I'm stressed about work, whatever. You know, God, I have to deal with Tim again on the on the damn show Every, and it's just making me grumpy. Yeah. You know, but but we can call each other out and and we don't take it defensively. We take it as this, yep, there it is. And I think there's mm -hmm. a there's a part of that where then it diffuses that situation. And I think that's a that's a good thing. So yeah. Lastly, I'd want to say that it's it is important to sort of kind of get into the groove of what you're doing and kind of enjoy where you are. Uh, it's not to be lax or to not strive. That That's not the point. It's to continue to strive sort of where you're at because that next promotion, it may, it may change your life in a way that you don't need it, you know, to, to go from you know, managing zero people to, to managing a small team or from managing a small team to managing a bigger team. Those are not always good rewards, you know, that go along with that. Yeah. Well, and I, it reminds me of like the work that Dan Gilbert does, this idea that we are really poor at forecasting what will make us happy for our future selves. Yeah. This idea that if only I get to this or I do that, I mean, much of the happiness research out there shows that this idea that if we're always striving for the next thing and thinking that that's going to make us happy, that is a falsehood in most situations. That this idea that we need to be more reflective of the things that are going on today and the positive elements that we deal with every day in and out. And 
be grateful for those. That is what leads to a more happy life, a more happy living component. I don't know. It's all there. Buddhism talks about it really simply that, that there's always this delta between what our expectations and our desires are and where reality is. And that delta mm. is, the, is the source of anxiety and friction and unpleasantness, you know, for lack of a better word. So if you want to avoid that, it's okay to just say, find happiness where you're at. That's, that's where I go. Okay. 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 So Kurt, what do you think listeners should take away from our conversation with Trevor? Well, we talked about a bunch of this, but I think it's just make sure that we understand that small, rude behaviors have a bigger impact than we probably think. And this, I think, is key, is that they are contagious. That this idea that a rude behavior is a one and done can be a falsehood. That rude behavior can linger, can sit there, and it should, and it can then be transferred to other people And pretty soon, as we talked about, you have a culture within your workplace that is a rude culture that is negative and demeaning and people are going to be not as productive and they're probably going to be leaving. And so you're going to have high turnover and all those other factors. That was a big extrapolation from just being rude. But I think that's probably some of the case, right? Can I also? Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, it's also a good thing to not listen to the star theme from Star Wars, because <laughs> Trevor talked about that, <laughs> right? When you're trying to get some really important work done, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Find something new. Find some new music so that you, it's not familiar. Right. So you're not paying attention to it. That was fascinating. I, I love and, that. And I love that he did his research on that. We talk about music every time and he came prepared. That was that good. Was terrific. Yeah. More guests should become come prepared. There we go. <sighs> if only. All right. Anyway, so I think what that means, though, Tim, is that our listeners should probably, if they're trying to work, should listen to some of your songs because (laughs) they probably have never heard them before. I'm sure that they've never heard them before. (laughs) So is all right. So is that rude? Was that rude? Because it was kind of a slam, like, you know, but was that rude or was that just good? This gets back to this relationship. I know that you're well. I thought that you were just, you know, (laughs) ribbing me. (laughs) No, in all seriousness, I'm ribbing. And people, you should. You should go out and listen to Tim's music. It's actually pretty good. What do you mean actually? What do you mean actually pretty good? Because, (laughs) see, there is that ribbing. Is that, is that, there you go. See, now you're, it's like, ooh, what does he mean actually pretty good? No, it's good. It is very good. I listened to it. It's on my, you're on a couple of my playlists on on Spotify and, and others. For getting back to sleep. <laughs> yeah. There you go. It does. It's my sleep. It's on my sleep sequence, but it's good. You know. Alrighty. Anyway. Well, maybe with, with that, folks, we should just wrap it up and just say, go out and be nice to people. Right? Go out and be nice to people and, and we hope that this week you go out and find your groove. 